I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, TJ Quinn, fine investigative reporter for ESPN. He is followed by Chad Finn, the sports media writer and general general columnist of the Boston Globe. In this podcast, TJ discusses his reporting on WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's being detained in Russia, the road ahead for her, the political component, what it means for um, players who have played in Russia in Europe in the past, we're talking about women's basketball players, whether she can get a fair trial in Russia, and just how you go about reporting what is a what is a tricky story to report because there is a part of this where the people who are very close to Griner and love Griner and care about Griner do not want this to be that big because that would have political implications in terms of a Brittany Griner returning. So TJ Quinn to start, and then Chad Finn and I get into the craziness of the NFL broadcasting season. Joe Buck and Troy Aikman to ESPN, what that means for both of those entities, the prospect of Joe Davis calling the World Series for Fox, Amazon's thoughts, uh, and then the media impact on the unretirement of Tom Brady, which is obviously a very big piece in Chad's neck of the world in Boston. So TJ Quinn to start, Chad Finn to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, TJ Quinn of ESPN is our first guest today. TJ, of course, you know from his outstanding investigative work at ESPN. Prior to that, was at uh, the Daily News in New York City, among other places, and was a baseball writer. I've known him for many, many years. I have immense, immense respect for his reporting abilities and um, just how he's, you know, he's been able to really. He's been really able to, if you're a sports fan, do some exploratory reporting in multiple mediums, whether it's television or print digital or audio. And pleased to be joined by TJ Quinn of ESPN. TJ, thanks for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Pleasure is mine, man. Thank you. All right. So let's, um, this is strictly going to be on Brittany Griner's detention in Russia. So as we're taping this, TJ, on Monday, March 14th in the morning. Can you give my listeners just sort of an overview of where things stand right now? Well, that it's funny. That should be a simpler. It sounds like a simpler question than it is. Um, we don't know a ton. We know she's been in custody in Russia since February 17th. We know that the Russian Russian authorities say that she had vape cartridges in her bag as she arrived in Moscow um, that they say has has hashish oil. Um, and beyond that, we don't know a ton. I mean, there, there's a history in Russia of prominent people being detained for very specious reasons. Um, they have planted drugs on people before. Um, we have seen there are, you know, a couple other Americans in custody right now whose cases have become very political. There was an Israeli woman in 2019 who was stopped with cannabis when during a layover 
in Russia. And her case was resolved because the Russian government cut a deal with the Israeli government and Putin ended up uh, pardoning her, basically in exchange for access to land in Jerusalem. So she's in this unbelievable morass right now where she is in the Russian criminal justice system. She could face, depending on how she's charged, anywhere from seven to 10 years or even 10 to 20 years. And you've got people around her and the federal government trying like crazy to keep this from getting to be too big a story. Because if it does, then it's no longer a criminal justice issue. Then it becomes a political issue. They really don't want Vladimir Putin's attention on this. So here's this story of uh, one of the greatest athletes in the world in detention in a hostile country. Um, but the people who are trying to get her out know they can't raise too much noise about it because that could put her in greater danger. All right. So there's a lot, obviously, there that you just said. So let's let's start here. Understanding that this is a complex story and that you are not in the country where Brittany Griner is being held. So a lot of the reporting, TJ, obviously is not on the ground. You have to sort of think about how am I going to approach this? Given that, how have you approached the reporting of this story? Uh, desperately. Um, I mean, there's, you know, you're right. I, I can't just go sit in a, in a Russian court for a bond hearing or an arraignment. Um, there is precious little official information. And even then, you don't know if you can trust it. So the first thing I did was reach out to legal experts I know who have worked in Russia. I spent some time there. We did an expensive, uh, excuse me, extensive, not expensive is accurate too, but uh, a really long look a few years ago at Putin's involvement in international sport. And everybody I talked to immediately said, yeah, they want to try to keep this low key. And then I started reaching out to and getting a hold of people around Brittany Griner, who there, there's a clear message that they want to get out. Look, we get it. We love the support. We absolutely agree that there are inequities, you know, between men's and women's sports in the U S and around the world. Um, but anytime somebody in a, you know, usually very well-intentioned way tries to raise the alarm about why this isn't a bigger story, they cringe because that's that's dangerous for them. So I've you know I've tried to reach out to the appropriate government officials, um, but it's a weird story because you can't get access. I can't call her lawyer in Russia. I don't know who it is. Um, I can't you know get a hold of her. So it's you know it is tricky to vet the information you're you're piecing together. Let's uh, there's a lot there's a couple of things to get to, but let's start with the the WNBA and Griner's representation. Brittany Griner's agent is Lindsay Kagawa Collis of the Wasserman Media Group. I've dealt with her for many years. Just when I did women's basketball, really smart and um, and 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 excellent at what she does. Um, from reading your piece, and kudos to Michelle Vopel as well, who um, did a phenomenal explainer with you on this, TJ. It's very clear that the WNBA obviously supports Brittany Griner and wants her home. At the same time, they're almost intentionally being um, low key here because they don't want to make it a cause celeb. I, I would, I'm sort of, sort of extrapolating here so that it doesn't put too much attention where her case becomes political. So in the course of your reporting, whether you're talking to Wasserman group or whether you're talking to the WNBA have, 
have either they made it clear to you that they don't want to talk or are they even sort of not taking reporters queries because they're intentionally trying to not turn this into a political story? Yeah, it's very deliberate there. They got guidance from the State Department early on. Everybody did that. You want to keep your heads down. So here's the needle they're trying to thread. You've got people screaming about why and screaming is not fair. I mean, it, 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 people, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I think they have good motivations, but you've got people trying to raise alarms about why isn't the WNBA doing more? Why isn't the White House or the, why aren't the White House or the State Department doing more? Why isn't the union doing more? There was actually a meeting on Friday between WNBA union uh, union officials, Brittany Griner's representatives, her wife, um, just to get everyone on the same page that, hey, look, we are doing everything we can. And I got a strong sense from people around Brittany Griner. They feel like the White House and State Department are completely engaged. Um, but I mean, that is some needle to thread in the year 2022, trying to convince the public uh, especially the, the part of the public that lives its life on social media. Yeah, trust the institutions to do what they're supposed to do. We are not in a place as a society to think that way. And so they don't want hashtags. They don't want, you know, members of Congress, uh, you know, like Sheila Jackson Lee and Colin Allred in Texas, you know, raising the alarm like they have been. I mean, when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was asked about this last week, he purposely did not use, or well, I'll say noticeably, did not use Brittany Griner's name. And because they're well aware that you do that, it's not just about raising attention. If you raise her profile, you raise her value as an asset. So right now, it, you know, it, it could go either way for her. A prosecutor could think, I don't want this headache. Get her out of Russia. Um, they have so many domestic issues to deal with. They're filling the jails right now with protesters. Um, experts I spoke to said that they may just want to get this done and get her out of there. But if she becomes, you know, so if there's so much attention on her, at some point, the economics of it are that her value as an asset is such that Russia can't ignore it and they can try to get something out of the U.S. government. Right now, it seems like Vladimir Putin has, you know, bigger things on his plate than an American basketball star. Um, but that's that's the line they're trying to walk. Reassure everybody, look, we are engaged. We just can't talk about it. How do you evaluate the, um, you know, there's sort of been some pieces out there, and it probably will be more, that sort of will posit that, hey, if Brittany Griner was uh, Tom Brady, you know, LeBron James. Mike Trout, you know, name your equivalent male, very famous star. Maybe that's not even a perfect equivalent, but you know what I'm getting at, TJ. Right. Absolutely. That the, yeah. the press coverage would be over the top. What's interesting there to me is that I think what what you have learned, because you know, you've probably been reporting this as much as anybody in the US, is that there would be a I'm not saying the media should necessarily follow the State Department's order, but if that kind of sort of coverage existed day after day, drumbeat after drumbeat, it would raise the profile of the case and then theoretically potentially could hurt the efforts to try to um, bring her home. But I just wanted to sort of get your even almost sort of top line evaluation. There's certainly some truth that if it was, 
you know, a very, very famous male athlete, it would be a much bigger story. At the same time, as you just stated, I think very smartly, if it becomes a bigger story, that is that is the opposite in terms of helping this person potentially get out of there. Right. I mean, that that's the paradox of this is here is where the lack of attention we pay to women's sports in this country actually works in Brittany Griner's favor. Um, because if it was one of those athletes, if it was LeBron or, or Tom Brady, you could not contain the story. It would just be too big. I mean, these are people who, you know, they they transcend sport in their celebrity. And, you know, look, there are certain female athletes where that would be the case as well. You know, I, I would argue Serena Williams. Yeah, Serena Williams. I mean, imagine if she was in custody, what the reaction would be. Um, you know, women's basketball doesn't permeate the culture the way tennis does, gymnastics, figure skating. Um, and we get, um, have many, many conversations about that. Um, and, and when you speak to people around Brittany Griner, they say, hey, look, these are great conversations. We love these conversations. We just don't want to have them right now. Let's wait till, you know, she's safe. And which, you know, kind of brings you to another problem is when is she going to be safe? I mean, again, the, we talk about trying to keep her out of the, the political realm. So this doesn't become a diplomatic case. You want to keep it, you know, sort of under the, the criminal justice system. But even then, she is in serious peril. And people have, you know, I've seen plenty of people speculate if she did or didn't have those cartridges with her. I have no idea. We I have no way to evaluate that evidence. In some ways, it doesn't matter. Um, yes, Russia does. And again, anything I say, it's I, I am not an expert on this. I just speak to a lot of experts on this. And what those experts have told me is you do have rule of law there to a certain extent. There is a criminal justice system that can function. There is due process. Um, but that is all subject to the whim of the people who run it. If at some point somebody says, we're going to get something out of this and she's going to spend time in jail and I don't care what the evidence says or you know, we're going to make political hay out of this, it will happen. So you know, that, that's the really delicate dance that they're doing over there is, hey, look, we understand there's going to be some kind of penalty here. She may well do jail time. And, you know, that's, you know, the, in some ways that could end up being sort of a best case scenario. Um, and it may be that we're in for a long haul here and, and you're asking people to ignore this. Uh, I, I think there's, I, I don't know, I get the sense that people feel like, these situations are somehow resolved quickly. This one may not be, this may take a very long time. Yeah. And that's just really awful to comprehend for, for Brittany Griner. Um, the, you know, the, the backdrop of this obviously is Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, the collapse in U S Russia relations. I mean, the collapse in, you know, Russia's relations with the um, free and peaceful world. To be blunt, uh, you know, once upon a time, TJ, my thought process would have been that the way to get Griner out would be to have the people who are associated with her Russian basketball team, which I think is UMMC uh, Ekaterinburg. I'm probably missing. No, that's pretty close. Ekaterinburg, yeah. Okay. And so, you know, usually it's sort of, uh, I think people in the women's basketball world know, you know, uh, players play abroad. The ones who played in Russia usually play for oligarchs. Um, they can get paid 
um, extraordinary amounts of money versus what they get paid uh, domestically, and that's why they go. But you know, usually the people who own these teams are pretty well connected, super wealthy people connected to the government. So my thought initially would have been that, you know, is there somebody within this um, the sports franchise who can who can talk to Russian officials and sort of be a liaison? But you know, from your reporting, TJ, and just sort of if you just sort of use common sense here, the the Russian invasion has changed the equation on this, right? Like that's that's where the the perhaps the normal liaison lines have been blown up because the you know we're the Western world is chasing the oligarchs to start with. Who knows how the oligarchs stand right now in terms of their relationship with Putin? So, you know, this this real potential lifeline sort of now just doesn't exist for her, which again complicates matters more hugely. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's really funny. You know, every every bit of this it's funny is probably the wrong word. I mean, but every bit of this situation. it's everything is Schrodinger's cat, right? Everything's alive and dead at the same time. The war means that she's in more danger, but it also means in some ways she may be in less danger. Um, There's, there's a randomness to this, you know, which is what makes it so fraught. It could go either way. The fact that there's a war right now means Putin and his government are distracted, have much bigger things to worry about. Um, On the other hand, it also means that, the relationship between the oligarchs and the Kremlin is not what it has been for a couple of decades. And, you know, the, the way the Russian government works, Putin is able to maintain power because he has the support of the oligarchs. The oligarchs are the richest men in the country. And I do mean men. Um, they run the biggest industries. They run, you know, energy, transportation, uh, media, um, you know, any major industry in that country is run by an oligarch and these extremely wealthy men. Um, they keep those jobs because Putin supports them. And it's the symbiotic relationship. They keep each other in power. Now that the rest of the world is targeting the oligarchs because people know that that's how power works in Russia. You know, there's this huge hope um, around the world that it's the oligarchs who will undermine him and eventually you know, remove Putin from power. And you don't know, you know, the oligarchs, that their money's being frozen. You, you hear people chasing yachts all around the world, uh, trying to seize assets. Um, we've seen what's happened with Roman Abramovich, um, you know, being forced to sell Chelsea, one of the premier sports organizations in the world, um, is in chaos now uh, because he's forced to sell and they can't sell uh you know, they can't sell merchandise or other things. Um, so we don't know really what sort of shape the oligarchs are in. We don't know what the relationship is with the Kremlin. And the old days when an oligarch could just pick up a phone and say, this player works for me, um, get her out of there. Those days are, are gone. And, you know, the, the, the life that they live over there there's been some attention to the amount of money that Americans can make going over there. And again, it's, you know, it's a legitimate issue that WNBA players are, are paid low six figures. Brittany Griner makes what you probably know better than I do around 240, 250,000. And she can go over to Russia and make more than a million uh, just for a few months. And that's because the oligarchs put a great premium on the teams that they own and they want to win. It's, it's a huge cultural thing for them. Um, but you're also, 
you know, and they're treated like stars. They get the full, you know, the, over there, they're treated like they're LeBron or, or Tom Brady. They don't get that here. But this is also who you're getting into business with is guys who are, you know, a, a crucial part of what's essentially a criminal state. Couple more here, and then I'll let you go. You and Michelle sort of posited this question, and I wanted to get a, a a sense from you how you saw it. Is Brittany Griner in any more danger as a member of the LGBTQ community? The possibility is there. Um, doesn't mean that she's in eminent physical danger right now. I haven't heard anything like that. Um, when I talked to people around her, I was you know told that. They feel, and they're talking about more about the American government, but that there's a commitment to ensuring her safety, you know, very vague statement, but that's what they said. But the, the, what that does, uh, the, the fact that she's gay means that in, in Putin's Russia, um, which is not exactly progressive, um, she could be used as a cultural symbol. The, you know, you hear it is, you know, you always have to be, careful wading in, you know, working for a sports network about wading into geopolitical issues. But it is just undeniably a fact that the Russian government and the right wing in this country echo each other's speech when it comes to some cultural issues, wokeism. You hear that out of Russians now about the woke West and that they are, that's part of the propaganda message is that Russia is the vanguard against that. Um, and so you've got, uh, a black gay American woman. Um, if Putin decides he's going to use her as a symbol of everything that Russia is fighting against. Yeah. Then, you know, she is, she is in peril. Um, and that's what they're hoping doesn't happen. It's the last one for me, TJ. And it obviously seems very, very minor and small compared to the the destruction and devastation and death in, the Ukraine. Um, my thought on this in terms of basketball uh, in Russia and American players playing in Russia, my thought is that we're never going to see that again, in our, at least in our generation, you know, in the next, uh, I don't even want to put a number on it, but let's, for the sake of it, you know, 20 years or so. Um, it's a, it's a very, very tiny part of this story, but a sports component of this story, TJ, is that the money that WNBA players um, made in Russia and made um, maybe away from Russia playing against Russian teams in like the European leagues, that's now, that's over. I, 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 I cannot conceive of a scenario where an American player would now play in Russia again, uh, given what's happened with Griner, in addition to obviously the, the invasion of the Ukraine. Do you... Do you concur with that? It just, again, it's a very tiny piece of this, but what has happened here, I think, has systematically changed um, the market for women's basketball players who have usually used Europe to go make additional dollars for their star. I, I mean, I think that is accurate in part because you've also got the Russian economy collapsing. And, you know, I haven't heard anybody suggest that there is some easy path out of this war that, that Putin started on his own and seems content to let the economy crash around him. Um, so the money wouldn't be there. The market wouldn't be there. You still have lucrative opportunities in Turkey, Israel, Italy, 
Um, but even Adam right. Silver, but they usually they've they've often played the Russian teams. You know that, that right. the, the Russians have been a very good part of those European champions. Exactly, and that brings me to a bigger point, which I think is you know that you you started to touch on, which is just what Russian money has done to the sports world. I mean, even the NBA had a Russian oligarch as a member, uh, sorry, as an owner, um, you know, yep. Prokhorov owning the Nets until just a couple of years ago. Um, you know, in the Premier League in, in England, they've, they've welcomed that money. Um, you've also got Middle Eastern oil money that, you know, when you start to look at the human rights abuses of those countries, I think there is going to be a reevaluation. Um, Countries have been content to let this Russian money pour in. It's not just sports. I mean, it's, you know, anybody follows uh, news or politics in, in the UK sees it's a huge issue because London has become this you know, massive repository for Russian money laundering. Um, so there are going to be repercussions in sports that people kind of in the past didn't really care where it came from. Um, and you've even got media companies in this country without getting too deep into that who are funded by Russian oligarchs. So I think, you know, there's going to be a big reevaluation of where that money is coming from, um, whether people are willing to tolerate it. Um, And yeah, I I think the landscape is, is going to change. It's uh, well said. Uh, TJ Quinn is a investigative reporter for ESPN. Um, He has done really, really interesting work on what's a pretty awful story, Brittany Griner being detained in Russia. Obviously, uh, credit Michelle Vopel as well, the longtime and fantastic women's basketball uh, writer and reporter who's helped with the reporting. TJ, I hope uh, ESPN continues you on the story. Um, it's it's a really important one, and and I respect your thoughtfulness here in that you got to sort of navigate a very, very fine line between reporting on it, but at the same time... Um, you know, on a humanity level, understanding that there, th- th- there is a major downside, perhaps, for the person who's in peril here, if there is too much attention on it. Yeah, so, it's uh, a little different yeah. than my days trying to figure out who the Mets were going to trade for to bolster the bullpen. You know, but exactly. it's, yeah, there's a lot at stake, and I really appreciate you, you know, letting me get into the nuance of it. You got it. TJ Quinn, uh, follow his work uh, at ESPN and on Twitter. Thanks, TJ. All right, I bring in Chad Finn, who's been on this podcast many times, the fine sports media writer and columnist, uh, general columnist for the Boston Globe. Chad, there has been... um, I don't even know where to begin, man. You You know, have you ever written about NASCAR... You know, NASCAR's got the great expression for all the driver movement in the offseason. They call it the silly season. So this has been the true silly season for NFL broadcasting. We've uh, we've never seen anything like it. 2002 was probably the closest when Madden left uh, Fox for ABC's Monday Night Football. Fox named Collinsworth, Collinsworth, Aikman and Buck as the three-person team there. Some are all retired, so that was a crazy time, but... But nothing's been like this. So let's start here. Um, just your overall thoughts at the at ESPN's Jimmy Pitaro landing not just Troy Aikman, but landing Joe Buck and Troy Aikman to do Monday Night Football. Yeah, well, as a firm believer that uh, broadcasters really don't move the needle on ratings, uh, the salaries are mind-boggling for everybody. You know, Romo get his uh, $180 million deal, so it's set the bar for everybody else here. But uh, 
in terms of the broadcast and the the uh, the hirings, I love it. I mean, uh, Joe Buck's called the World Series since 1996. He's called uh, the Super Bowl forever, and they've got another one coming up here in 11 months uh, on Fox, and um, gives them uh, a high profile booth that. As much as I like Steve Levy, Lewis Riddick, and I thought Brian Greasy was uh, pretty decent too, it just doesn't have the uh, the cachet that that Buck and Aikman would. And um, and I've written this in the last couple of months. I think Aikman is the best color analyst in football. He, if you're going to take an ex quarterback, uh, ex Cowboys quarterback, uh, he's the number one pick in my draft. And Romo, as great as he is, is number two. Uh, I think Aikman's become more candid. Uh, he's more critical of the league than any of those guys. And I think ESPN is getting him at exactly the right time. And uh, I, I, I really think it's a smart move for them. Yeah, I like Troy a lot. I agree with you. Um, I think he's gotten progressively better. He works very hard. He prepares. As Trad and I are taping this literally on this day, Monday, I have a long, long piece on The Athletic, you know, having talked to a lot of people just sort of about, uh, you know, um, the whys and – what it might mean for all these different networks heading forward. So you know, feel free to shameless plug there. Feel free to check that out if you're into that stuff. And, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, you said something, Chad, that is, that is absolutely accurate. Like there's really no way to get a viewership return on investment at the money outlay that Jimmy Pitaro is giving Buck and Aikman. But the reason that these networks do this and I think you hit on it, is one, you know, you want to put on the best possible product so that you can, um, on your most important property, which Monday Night Football is for ESPN, so that the audience sort of comes away feeling that they've they've been given a professional experience. And then in theory, you know, you'll continue to pay for and watch ESPN. There's certainly value to the league because the leagues ultimately vet all these broadcasters and you know, if you're ESPN, you want to have a broadcasting group that the NFL feels is big time so you can get big time games like the Super Bowl, which they're now in. Bucket Aikman certainly would present you with a really good uh, story to come out for your media upfronts, which usually happen in May, where um, you make the pitch to advertisers about why they should advertise on ESPN. And there's a lot of sizzle if you bring Joe Buck and and Troy Aikman out in a stage in New York and and you're you know you're trying to sell that. There's no doubt people like Troy uh can be really good with media advertisers, you know, you want to sort of like finalize or land uh Ford or Coke, you know. You have Troy Aikman talk to the to the Ford rep for a couple of minutes. I mean, this, you know, everybody's watched Mad Men. This is sort of how these these worlds work. So it's interesting like on a purely like salary structure chat, there is no way these guys are worth this money, right? But one, you're worth the money that they'll pay you. And two, it's a little hard to extrapolate Extrapolate how much is the sizzle worth. And that's clearly what Jimmy Pataro did here is he's, um, he's paying for sort of a story even if the Monday Night Football viewership numbers don't go up at all, which quite frankly, they might not given whatever happens with the matchups next year and the competitiveness of the games. Right. But you know what this does too, Richard? I, I think it gives uh, Monday Night Football maybe a little bit more shine back. I agree. They, they've lost uh, in part because of the schedule that they have. But uh, Sunday Night Football is the number one rated show in prime time. That's not sporting event. That show for the last decade. Uh, and it 
at some point in the mid 2000s, it, it became the signature NFL event that Monday Night Football was when we were growing up. Um, but if you look at it, you know, uh, Tariko in the booth, they've made some curious hiring decisions. I don't think Drew Brees is working out the way they thought. And there's a little bit of room here for uh, Monday Night Football to get a high profile booth back in there and capture at least part of that big event audience back that they, they, they've lost here since, I don't know, since uh, may, at least since it's been on ESPN. So in that sense, I think uh, I, I really think this is a benefit to ESPN and, and uh, adding a little bit more luster to Monday Night Football and recapturing a little bit of a, what it once was. Yeah, we'll see. My only caveat, my only hesitation on that chat is I just I think so much of viewership on Monday night and Sunday night too are it's so viewership driven and story yeah. driven. Yeah, Sunday's always going to win that. Yeah, so you really like the reality is if Monday night football gets Tom Brady like <laughs> early, like that's going to be a big number. If Monday night football um, has uh, I'm just making this up, okay? Like the Giants versus Dallas, and like Dak Prescott's out for that game, and the Giants are terrible. That's going to impact viewership. One thing I want to ask you about this, because I'm really f- sort of fascinated about this. How do you think Buck and Aikman coming in impacts the Manning cast, if at all? Uh, probably not at all, right? Um, I, I feel like it's a distinct thing. Uh, the buzz that it generated uh, really isn't equal by the ratings, but the, the buzz is very valuable to them. They get a lot of great feedback and uh uh, positive commentary about the the popularity of that show and how good Peyton and Eli were, and uh, you know the guests always generated interest. I I, I remember uh, you know I had editors in the middle of the day on Mondays saying, "Do we know who the guests are yet? Do we know who they have?" And you you know you have to go check the Omaha Productions feed to see if they've posted it yet. And uh, um, that's all valuable stuff for ESPN. But you know we saw what the ratings were. Uh, the viewership numbers were where what it was about seven or eight times uh, the Manning cast number on Monday night for the regular broadcast, because most people, when they care about the teams playing, are still going to choose conventional broadcast. I don't think think they see an uptick from uh, the group they have now to Buck Aikman in the ratings, as we mentioned before, but I don't think it means any sort of uh, marginalization for the Manning cast either. The... Um... You know, the a real interesting story now is obviously what Fox decides to do. And from every th- from every person I talk to and sort of all indications indicate that Joe Davis is going to get bumped up to call the World Series. Yeah, that to me, would be that very, too. yeah, that would be a very smart move by Fox. I actually don't think it's even a hard decision. Um, David Joe Davis is an excellent broadcaster. He calls the Dodgers. He's called postseason games for Fox. He's really well respected in the in the in the business of baseball, in sort of the larger industry of the sports media, and he's at a perfect age, I think, for him to slot in. He's thirty four, perfect yeah. age to slot in, Chad. And you've got your guy for the next, you know, whatever, ten, fifteen, twenty. I I mean, I should say twenty because I mean, you know, that's sort of that kind of career is uh, generally like a unicorn as Buck was, but they they're in they'd be in a great position. I think just to 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 slot Davis in, he can work with Smoltz or whoever. I don't think you have to go shopping elsewhere because I don't really particularly think there's necessarily a better national baseball broadcaster than what Joe Davis will be. So to me, that's an easy one. You agree? 
Yeah, it's easy and obvious, and uh, he's tremendous, has a sense of humor, too. He's actually older than Buck was when he got the gig. I think it was Buck 27, yeah. 28. Yeah, um, exactly. He's 52 now, so... Uh, but, uh, yeah, he makes all sense in the world though. Here in new England, you know, Red Sox fans, uh, seven years later, still bitter that Don Orsillo was allowed to get away. So anytime one of these national jobs opens up, people always say, Oh, Orsillo should get this. And, uh, um, but, uh, realistically it's really Joe Davis in the field. Yeah. And or, listen, Orsillo is a na- national quality broadcaster and has done games for Turner and, and Fox. Uh, yeah. And he's good. Yep. And, you know, listen, I um um I think Dan Schulman is fantastic. I reported that, you know, he's not leaving his jobs, but you know, he obviously would be a great World Series caller. But Fox has Fox already has the guy under contract. Like it just it's such a to me, that's not a hard decision. I think you overthink it if you go elsewhere. The football one obviously is the real decision. That's the the trickier decision. They have a very good number two team in Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson. Kevin Burkhart to me, um, would be a fine number one NFL play-by-play broadcaster. Again, I think if you moved him up, I don't think there's any issue about he's going to call a quality of game. And so really the decision is, in many ways, it's tricky, but in many ways, Chad, it's simple. Eric Shanks and Brad Zager, the you know the, the, the head of Fox Sports and the executive producer of Fox Sports, ultimately just have to decide if they think Greg Olson is a long-term number one. If they think he's a long-term number one, then slot him into the position now, and even if it's a little bit sooner than you would have planned to, you know, you're investing in this team as your number one team. If they don't think he's the number one or long-term number one, that's where it gets, you know, that's where it gets interesting. And then you start looking outside of Greg Olson right now and and who could you put in this year. There just aren't as many candidates um, or obvious candidates to to, to be a, um, a number one analyst, you know, coming in this year so if they decide to go outside the box or outside I shouldn't say outside the box if they decide to go outside their own organization that's where it gets a little bit tricky and then finally of course you know they'll I'm sh- I am sure they have done their due diligence certainly by now as we're taping this and talking to Al Michaels representatives and that decision would be do you bring Al Michaels in for sort of a short-term play you have the next you have two Super Bowls out of the next three years but again I think that would send a pretty bad message to Kevin Burkhart um, you know, Kevin Burkhart's not 30, you know, he's 48 years old. Like you're, you'd be saying that, um, well, we're going to bring this other guy in to do these massive, massive games. And then, and then it's your turn kid down the road. So Al Michaels to Amazon makes so much more sense to me from the Fox perspective, but you know, as me and you've been covering this a long time, not every, not every decision makes sense. Yeah, the you know the one thing I'm kind of I guess disappointed with uh, this whole process. I want to hear Michaels and Aikman together because I, if I were ranking everything, I would have Al still number one as play by play and Aikman as analyst. And uh, I, I was really curious to see how that would have worked. Um, and I, yeah, and I think Al was enthusiastic about the possibility. Um, but you know, Buck and Aikman is a known quantity and a, a really good one. I'm with you on Burkhart. Uh, that you know, one of the knocks on on Buck that really I don't know, might have been fair at the beginning, but it really was not after he established himself as a, you know, an A1 type of broadcaster, um, was that he didn't he didn't pay the dues. Well, Burkhart's the guy who's paid his dues. He's been saddled with some yeah. he was a car salesman, right, right in New York. Yeah. Car salesman, yeah. exactly. Really yeah. paid his you know, met sideline reporter, I think, and and uh saddled yep. with some bottom of the depth chart uh color analysts early on at Fox and 
uh, he's really good no matter who he's with. I'd like to see him get it. Uh, I imagine the baseball side, he probably stays in the studio over there because he's the uh, he's the absolute necessary master of that zoo that they have on their the, their baseball <laughs> postseason show in, in particular. But uh, I'd like to see him get it. I wonder if they have some concerns that he and Olsen at this point aren't the biggest names, um, particularly Olsen, who has got rave reviews. He did one Patriots game, I think. I thought he was fantastic. Uh, but he's not a high-profile ex-quarterback. He's a really good ex-tight end and uh, just doesn't have that same uh, same buzz, again, to use that word, that uh, 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 maybe bringing in a higher-profile broadcasting or more experienced broadcasting name would have. But I, if they go that route, I don't think it'll be a mistake, and I think it'll end up being pretty well received. I agree. Um, so here's sort of what I posited if you're the Fox people. You you can really sort of make this your um, moment to bring a new generation of uh, of broadcasters to your top properties. You, you bump Burkhardt up. You put Joe Davis in the Voice of the World Series. You bump Adam Amin up, who I think is phenomenal to make him your number two NFL broadcaster. And perhaps one day he could be your lead broadcaster on the Super Bowl or whatever. You bump Olsen up. And so, you know, you, you, you reward him for what was a really excellent season. You live with the fact that yes, Jimmy Pitaro, you know, went Danny ocean and stole (laughs) your, stole your stuff from the casino. And they're going to have a much more sexier name booth, but you have saved Chad millions of dollars in salary and you go to Lachlan Murdoch at Fox, uh, Fox CEO Corp, and you say, hey, all right, we don't have Troy and Joe, but we have a really good team, and I just saved you $25, 30000000 million. So where's my bonus? <laughs> That's cynical. So I like I, it. I, like I, I, yeah, and the view, by the way, both of us agreed the viewership's not going to change. Fox 425 Sunday, that viewership is not changing uh, given the – um, persons who are doing the game. Again, I'm not saying it doesn't feel bigger with Buck and Aikman. I totally agree with that sentiment, but that they're always, Fox is always going to have a mega game in that time slot and it, when they have the late game doubleheader. And so to me, I don't think you have any sort of issues with the public if, if Burkhard and Olsen get it. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's Fox. They like to swing big. They're going to do their due diligence and, you know, like tomorrow, if you told me it's Al Michaels and Philip Rivers, oh, yeah. Al Michaels and <laughs> uh, yeah, what I it's not gonna be Tom Brady now, who we'll get to. But like, had you told me that, like, I wouldn't have been surprised because like, sort of Fox's mo is to sort of really sort of go big and splashy. I mean, any of us who covered FS1's launch sort of know how they love to go big and and splashy. But I'm with you. I, I think. I think if they stick with the people that they've actually hired, I think they're going to be in a good position. What did you think about the John Lynch rumors that they went after him? Because I, I really liked him, but he I'm wasn't not, the, the, the say, Yeah, like, what is the difference? Here's what I would say. Tell me the difference in in sizzle between John Lynch and Greg Olson. There's none. No. Like, why would you go after John yeah. Lynch? That's and – I, and while I think John Lynch was a good analyst, he wasn't – in my opinion, again, it's all subjective – he wasn't transformation. Tim Burkhardt and Moose Johnson for a while. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were they were a fine, solid professional team, but by no means would I leave like that broadcast and be like, oh man, like I feel like, you know, this is the next Madden yeah. in summer. That's what I would describe Buck and Aikman too. Fine, solid, professional, better than fine, but solid, professional, and um 
you know, no antics, which that really at, at my, this point in my life, that's all I care about is not having to deal with shtick. Yeah. And they got, they got, they got better as the years went on. I just, I'm like you, I really like Aikman. I just think the guy, like he's always prepared. He's sort of, he's been out of the game as a current player for a long time, but he still feels like he has a com- command of the people yeah. who are playing. So I just I think he's good. I mean I think I actually think we're in a really great period where I think all the the number one. Eggman's also a great guy to um, deal with. I think we can admit that too. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he. I've interviewed him. He's just he's one of the few guys, Chad, as you know, when you've talked to him too. Like at that level, he he's is, a yeah, shooter. Yeah, that guy. That that guy is one comfortable in his skin, and let's just be honest, he has fuck you money, and he's just willing to. He'll just be honest. The guy gave me the best quote I've ever gotten on Skip Bayless. So. Uh, which I know got him in trouble there. So I, I appreciate, not Skip, Troy. So I appreciate, uh, I always appreciate Troy's honesty. All right, last one real quick on this. And then oh, I do want to get to Brady with you. Um, what do you think of a potential Amazon booth of Kirk Herbstreet? And let's let's just, for the sake of this conversation, make it Mike, Al Michaels. Um, that's a very sexy, high-profile booth. What I just don't know, and none of us are going to know yet until it happens, is... Um, what, you know, what's the viewership going to be like? Are like people going to be excited to tune into Amazon, or is it going to be like Thursday Night Football from what we've seen over the last five, six years? If it's a compelling game, you're interested in. If it's just sort of one of these ho hum divisional matchups, you're like, eh, I don't know, I don't have to watch that. Yeah, again, it depends on the schedule, really. You know, I mean, you think about Thursday Night Football when it first launched; they were just abysmal matchups. It felt like you yep. got like. Titans Jaguars every week, you know, Bengals Browns or something. It was just, uh, it, it felt like the league, and this is probably what they were doing, was trying to squeeze in every single uh, team, no matter how lousy they were, into a primetime window at one point or another. Um, I don't think uh, maybe Aikman and, and Al would have driven a little bit of viewership there, though, again, you know, I don't have to repeat my thoughts on how broadcasters actually affect that or, or don't. But um, I don't know if Herb Street is a, a tr- uh, interest driver there. I think he'd be very good. He's uh, the, the football games, the NFL games that he's called uh, in the past with Fowler. They've seemed like they've done it forever, but, um, and clearly he wants to do it. I would love to be involved in the NFL too. But uh, in terms of generating additional interest for, uh, Amazon, I, I, I don't think it really does. And I don't think Al does either because the rumors have been out there for so long that uh, when it actually happens, it's it's not going to be this big surprise to anything or, or to anybody or be greeted with great fanfare that Amazon landed Al Michaels because at this point, we're kind of waiting for the announcement. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Tommy Brady from your part of the world in New England. Uh, so He's back. At least we'll take him at his word that he's back. And I know this is a big story in your neck of the woods in in, uh, in Boston or in the New England area. What I want to ask you about is uh, both of us wrote multiple stories last year about how the networks were clamoring to get Brady games. And obviously everybody wanted the Brady returns to New England game. And so, you know, maybe because of like what we write and because we're sort of sports media nerds, my first thought when Brady, or one of my first thoughts when Brady came back was, wow, like this, Chad, this has a like a real significant impact on the viewership of the NFL. And so I think, once again, you'd have to agree, right? It, 
like you may be sick of Tom Brady. I get it if you if you're uh, if you're not in New England or not in Tampa Bay. But the reality is, like this guy's must watch TV once again, and all these networks now are going to be clamoring for the Bucks games. The, the Bucks have once again become a national team. Yeah, they have. I mean, uh, the, one of the first things I thought of when that uh, tweet came out last night that he's he's re- going back to the Bucks uh, around seven fifteen was uh, to to go look at the Bucks schedule and see uh, see who they had. And we their marquee matchups this year that uh, have exponentially greater interest now because he's the opposing quarterback to Joe Burrow. I mean, the first time they'll play against each other. Could be the game of the year. Um, rematch with Stafford, who uh, uh, we thought for a little while it ended Brady's career with that that Rams uh, Bucks playoff game. Um, it's got Patrick Mahomes again. Great history with those two already in their careers. So uh, those games just have uh, much more increased interest than than they would if uh, it's Patrick Mahomes against Blaine Gabbard or whoever the uh, Bucks quarterback would have been. Um, so in that sense, uh, I had to file a Brady column this morning, more about from the New England perspective. And uh, uh, one of the things I noted, it's really obvious, but the NFL is better when Brady's in it. And uh, he had an argument as league MVP last year. Um, Aaron Rodgers won it, but you could, you could make a really good case for Brady there. And uh, they just got the marquee quarterback uh, back, who is going to be 45 years old when the season starts, but... He may have had the best statistical season of his career since 2007 last year. So this is a good thing for the Buccaneers. It's probably just as good a thing for the NFL that he's uh, decided to keep playing. I know that you sort of a different, it's sort of viewed differently where you live because he played for the Patriots and then obviously left the Patriots to go to the Bucs. Yeah. I like Tom Brady. I do like, too. I think he's, yep. yeah, I mean, I think he's it's a good person. Um, I, I mean, not just that, but like, I just think like, None of us really understand what it's like to to be in that kind of spotlight, mm-hmm. and for a guy who's been in that kind of spotlight, as a general rule, I think he's about a, he's done about as good as one can do. It, you know, it's just it's very hard not to sort of be under the griddle um, with that many people interested in you. And yes, I know about the flake gate, everything, blah blah blah. But like as a general rule, I like him. He's obviously been an amazing quarterback, but I think in like I don't I don't have animus to Brady. I, I, quite frankly, I have the opposite. What I am curious about though, Chad, is how do you think the perception will be and the sort of the media coverage of Brady will be um, this year? Do you think people will be excited that he's back, or will this be will he get tagged that like <laughs> Tom is just selfish? He only wants to be about him. I know in New England it's probably very split between the diehards who love the guy for everything he did, and then I'm sure there's a group that's like, we're tired of this guy, we're sick of this guy, uh, et cetera. I, what I don't know is, like, does the New England dichotomy, is that echo the rest of the country, or does the rest of the country sort of think differently about Brady? And I honestly, I just don't know. I actually really don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, here it's really interesting because uh, when he announced he was retiring, the response was, how could he not mention us? <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. did that AP. It was like, it was like a 20 day story. In New it York. was. And I was kicking myself like three or four days after that, that I just didn't pick up on what it all meant. He never said the word retirement in that eight page Instagram statement. It was all sorts of uh, ways to write around it. And, you know, we took it as a slight and that he was still mad at the Patriots about something, which was a real contrast to what we saw this year in week three, when uh, all 
fences were mended. They had that great game, and then Belichick and Brady sat for a half an hour. And, and yeah, he ran out before the game. Yeah. He did like no, all that was closure. Exactly. That's what that was, yeah. and uh, there's no animosity at all. And Brady, anyway, went down there and won a Super Bowl, so he he wins any argument to this point that he wants to win. Um, so it was silly to think of it that way. And then, uh, but we all get caught up in it here. We're all like, uh, he, uh, why does he hate us? And should have been reading between the lines instead in that statement, which was, this might be goodbye to the Bucks. This probably isn't goodbye to football. Uh, because uh, it was probably two days after that, that stories started popping up uh, with him uh, wanting to play with the Niners and um maybe ending his career where he grew up playing for his favorite team the dolphins are interested and it became pretty obvious that there was a at least a decent chance that he was going to play again this season so um it's a different world here i think if i'm in a fan base other than new england and tampa bay i'm annoyed that he's back because he's still really good and he's ruined a lot of people's best laid plans over the last 22 years but uh the NFL is really happy he's back. Uh, the, NF, uh, the broadcast partners are thrilled that he's back. And uh, overall, I think it's it's a really good thing for the NFL. He's going to get asked a lot this year, though. Uh, are you retiring? Are you retiring? And one of the things he said about um, why he said he was walking away, or however he phrased it, was he didn't want to be asked if he was going to be going to retire or what his plans were. He just wanted a, a break for a little while. So he's going to be asked those questions again. Yeah, there's no way he can escape that. I mean, I think that in addition to what he's currently doing, uh, his future is going to be a story every week. Uh, you know, that's just sort of the deal, given that he, you know, unretired and history serves with Brett Favre and everybody else. It's uh, it's going to be a story. Also, it speaks to, you know, it just speaks to his greatness. Like, people care. People, nobody's ever done this before. No one's ever played this grade 44 in the NFL, so... Uh, it's obviously going to be, it's essentially going to be one of the biggest stories in the NFL on a daily basis. All right, last one, and then I'll let you go here. You're in a, obviously, you're in an amazing city when it comes to baseball fandom. Uh, or I know you don't live in Boston, but obviously you are part of the Boston community. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to figure out, Chad, if like the work stoppage would have any impact on, on viewership interest in baseball. And I'm going to say no. Um, even though the fans, uh, rightfully were sort of ticked off at the fact that this went on for however many days during the middle of a, of a pandemic. But I, I I think at the end, people are going to be, those who are baseball fans are going to be excited to watch. Now baseball's got its issues with, uh, RSNs and it's got its issues with like the national product just seems to be, in my opinion, on way too many places, but you know, baseball's made that decision to get the money. Um, but I don't know. I don't feel like there's going to be a backlash on this one because the regular season is going to be played in full. That's my guess. I yeah. They see. dodged it. If games were canceled, uh, not just those first six games that, uh, initially were before they decided they, they reached their agreement and decided they'd play with the full 162, but also the ones that, uh, Manfred and the owners were threatening to cancel for the, uh, second phase. If that had happened, they would have lost a lot of people. Uh, for sure. I mean, just the response I've heard uh, is generally along the lines of, if they do this, I'm out. And uh, I'm, it seems like the message got to the owners, because I got to tell you, everything we've seen over the last couple of years was that the owners were really going to try to break the players union in this. And the 43-day gap between offers, um, 
trying to uh, uh, stir up resentment toward the players and you know, players really savvily use social media to get their message out this time around, which I think the owners miscalculated on. But all those things, uh, I think, led to uh, the owners having a change of heart here during negotiations and really recognizing that uh, they were going to lose a lot if they missed games. Um, but in general, uh, the ratings, at least here in New England, uh, they, they tend to be tied to how well the team is doing. I know that sounds simplistic, but there, there are people who after 2020 are really frustrated with the Red Sox and they had that miserable 60 game season and uh, just, you know, the world was a mess, but the team was also terrible. Uh, and then last year they had a surprising, uh, uh, really good uh, uh, season out of nowhere, made the playoffs, knocked out the Yankees and Rays and, Ratings on our local uh, regional cable network were up 20% uh, in that range last year. So uh, I, it seems to me it's that way in every market. It's that same way nationally, that if the team is good, the interest is going to be there, even as people start the season pissed off at uh, one side or the other after the labor negotiations. Chad Finn is a media writer and uh, general columnist for the Boston Globe. You can check out his work. On that uh, publication, online in that publication, obviously follow him on uh, on Twitter. He uh, not only covers Boston-related stuff, but obviously does a lot of national stuff, especially when it comes to sports media. Chad, uh, you'll be back. Uh, by the next time you're back, I feel like all the broadcasting uh, positions in the NFL will be set, so we we can we can. We could evaluate when the final decisions have been made. Hey, I love this silly season, and uh, I like even more how much reader interest there is. And it's really, uh, it's pretty cool that uh, it's like the fifth fifth major sport at this point. You're right. There's a reason. Uh, there's a reason all our editors and publications are asking us to write this because the the page views and subs go way up. You're right. Who would have ever thought? I know. Right, <laughs> but but it is. But it is. But man, it is true. Uh, Chad Finn, thanks, Chad. Hey, thanks, man. Good talking to you. All right, uh, back in the studio, my thanks to TJ Quinn and Chad Finn for their time and insights and the excellent conversation. If you like these kind of conversations, please head to the uh, Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, uh, homepages on the various uh, places you listen to this. Leave us a uh, five-star review and a nice note. That is how the podcast continues. And uh, and thank you for the very, very many nice words you have said about this podcast. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. It's definitely read. Uh, heading back to the archives, last podcast before this, Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman. Bomani Jones is a new show on HBO. Jeff Perlman, of course, uh, wrote the book, That Winning Time, the uh, very fun HBO show of the uh, Lakers in the 80s. It's based on Brian Curtis of The Ringer. Prior to that, he did a podcast on the state of the Canadian media with six Canadian sports journalists. Before that, uh, did a piece on Troy Aikman's big move with uh, Jimmy Train of Sports Illustrated. And then interviews with Mike Tirico, Michelle Tafoya, and many others. Head back to uh, the archives. Hopefully you'll find something you're interested in. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. And uh, Cadence 13 for their uh, support of this podcast. Most appreciated. Most of all, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Sports Media Podcast.